Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. So, Michael, you did some work with Living Color. Was that a real production effort? Uh I just did one song with them for the end title on a movie called um, Oh, Four-Year-Old Parent Brain Again. I don't even remember the movie. It was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, True Lies, that's what it was. Okay, a yeah. James Cameron movie, yeah. Did James Cameron do that? Yeah. Oh, Jamie no Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee Curtis. and That's the one. Arnold, yeah. yeah, we did a version of Sunshine of Your Love. Mm. so could you get a sense at that point that they were a hell of a band um i think the rest of the world knew it pretty much i mean they were pretty successful at that time you know i mean they just kind of had agreed to do it and i think that we just wanted to see what it would feel like working together um but we didn't make a record together so i think that lets you know that things were kind of like <laughs> They were okay, but not not great. I mean, those guys are extraordinary. So that's not a that, that is in no way a commentary on them. And uh, what about Hull? Uh, as far as had that happen, what was the uh, process like? Uh, what was it like working with them and uh, Courtney Love? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I mean, it was. Uh, it was a journey, like all of them are in some way. Did you know, Ozzy prep you uh, for that one? <laughs> um, I think they all did, really. You know, it's I by that time I developed this very strange reputation, which I don't th- I I didn't think initially that I cultivated on my own, but I realized after a while that I actually had in some way because I. I, I don't I don't know how mentally stable I, I I was. So I tended to get I tended to wind up with projects that were with people who a lot of other producers, I suppose, would have been like hmm, about, you know, like Courtney and later on Manson and Corin, uh, you know, people who are kind of like, you know, a handful, shall we say. And I think part of my reputation was that I was able to make great records with these people, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say I, I did. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I will also say that I was a lucky recipient of being able to 
get in the proximity to these people at an optimal time for them. I mean, I, I don't think that Courtney and those guys would have made a record like Celebrity Skin if I hadn't been producing it, but she was pretty primed at that point. She was in a really good position personally, uh, career-wise, artistically. You know, all of her stars were in alignment and she could pretty much do whatever she wanted at that point. And uh, I just was, I was very fortunate to be in the midst of all that and to get her when she was in like tip top shape and really at the top of her game. As far as uh, Manson goes, um, in what way was uh, he challenging to work with? Uh, you know, I, I think if you read about him, you can pretty much get a good picture of, uh, you know, who he was, what it would have been like working with him. Uh, at times he was, he was incredibly professional. Like, you know, when he had to do his stuff, um, he just, he just got down to business and knew exactly what he had to do. And he was very determined and he also had a very clear artistic vision, which uh, was was very impressive to me. Uh, he knew what he was what he was after artistically. Uh, I, I'm I'm glad I was able to fill in the blank sonically for him, you know. But it, sometimes he could be very difficult to work with, you know, just to have around the studio. Uh, you know, I mean, he could be very abusive to the people that he worked with that were in his band, and. Uh, you know, it was a, it, it could be a difficult atmosphere at times. Fortunately, the whole process went by very quickly. Uh, and we were able to put together the recording very fast. And uh, it came out great. I was very, very happy with it. It's one of my favorite records, actually. What year was that one? That, that was done in 80, in 98. And it came out, I think it came out the end of 98. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it came out in September of, of 98. The same time that Hold did, the same week. Wow. Yeah. Two records in the top 10 in one week. That was fun. <laughs> Can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and corn so unconventional, you know, in their sound and you know, yeah, really kind of innovative, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, extremely. Yeah, they've really defined a whole style of music, and you know, I think in a similar way to the Chili Peppers. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, corn had a they have a much different feel to them than the, than the Chili Peppers. I mean, there's always been something even at their most intense and driving, there's always been something light and joyous about the Chili Peppers. You know, whereas with Corn, obviously there's a lot of darkness and a lot of angst uh, and, you know, and, and, and suffering as well. And it's, and it's very, very, and it's very, very real. Uh, it's a very, Corn are cathartic, the both bands are cathartic in many ways and you know but corn is obviously very cathartic and a very deep and very 
primal kind of like just shadowy way like very dark very heavy uh and they had a they they just had a very powerful emotional effect on 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 their fans and people who love their music you know how how big were they by the time you started to work with them were they already at their height um i felt at that point like they were sort of peaking really um and i think they felt it too but i didn't want to let that be something that dictated what we would do with this record um i thought it was very important for us to strive for something that was unique and that was really going to type of that, that was going to kind of solidify where they were at that moment in time and really kind of create like a I guess a, a milestone for them, excuse me, in, in every way possible. And so we put a tremendous amount of effort into making that record. Uh, and it's funny because it actually wound up doing extremely well, but it would have done better if it hadn't, if it hadn't been leaked um, a couple months before it was released, which is really a shock. One of the guys in the band got his computer hacked and uh, like they, someone pulled all the music off of his uh, hard drive, including the final mixes for the record. And within 24 hours, it was up on websites all over the world. So everyone got to hear the record before the record came out. And it's interesting what, um, Uh, you know, setup for a record really does. Like when you've had time to really prepare the rest of the world for it, you've built up all this anticipation and all the marketing and promotion has gone into it. And, you know, all of a sudden that got taken away from one of the most, one of the biggest bands in the world. I mean, the same thing wound up happening to Eminem too, but his management company and record company made the intelligent decision to release the record immediately. You know, they just didn't want to wait. They were kind of like, okay, this is out. We better put the record on right away. And they wound up triumphing because that record sold a lot. It did extremely well. And I think for the most part, people forgot that the record had been leaked. By comparison, Hole's man Hole, Korn's management were like, no, we're going to stick to the plan. We're going to deal with it. We're going to treat it like this never happened and just put the record out when it, when it comes out. And over the course of over that course of time, which was about two months, the entire world had already heard the record and they'd already made their own decisions about it without the fanfare that would normally accompany a record like this. And really, it kind of shot it shot a lot of the juice out of it. Uh, I remember seeing comments that people made on websites about it and they were kind of like, yeah, I heard the record, you know, kind of meh, you know. And, you know, I, I, I realized that um, their management had made a tremendous error in waiting that long instead of just sort of saying, you know, treating this like, okay, this is a glitch in our plan, but we need to go forward and we need to, we need to change tack right away. Uh, but what's nice about it is that in the ensuing years, what happened is that a lot of corn fans 
most, in fact, seem to look at untouchables as being sort of like the last great corn record. And it's a record that a lot of people feel hasn't completely gotten its due, which I, I agree with. Uh, I think it's a very special record and it kind of got overlooked just because of what happened and what the rollout was like. I mean, with that said, I'm going to say that it's probably sold about, you know, maybe 3 million records worldwide at this point, um, which is not bad. Obviously, it's recouped as well which is good because it cost a significant amount of money to make, but we're talking about doing a 20th anniversary re-release, which I think is going to include a, a, an immersive remix, as well as a bunch of rough mixes from the record. And uh, I think that that has the potential to reintroduce people to it. And uh, I think it's going to, I think that's going to be significant for them. That sounds like a good idea. Just don't let it leak. <laughs> no no i don't think I, hey it's going to be a little bit more difficult with the immersive side at this point everyone's heard the record although a lot of people have heard it but you know hopefully uh a whole lot of new people will get get a chance to hear it and uh yeah it's exciting in all these uh in some cases very interesting environments that you found yourself in which one out of all of them would you say was like the biggest zoo to be immersed in? <laughs> um, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, I mean, some of them, there's, there's a handful that have, that are kind of, that are sort of vying for the title but they've all had their own unique circumstances that really kind of set them apart from one another. Uh, you know, in terms of like difficulty in managing personalities. I mean, obviously uh, the whole and the uh, Manson records were, you know, were, were, were difficult from, from that perspective. The Corn record was too in many, in many regards. Um, Ozzy was kind of, that was tough, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but at the same time, like so many, yeah, I can't, I can't discount the Chili Peppers records either. Yeah, actually, you know what, I, I have to go back on that. I think, I think Uplift was probably, that would, that would have been the hardest because that there were so many aspects of that record that made it almost unmakeable. To the extent where we couldn't have, where we're under normal circumstances, that record would never have gotten made. Just so many things, there were so many roadblocks in the process. Um, and it was, I think any, for anyone else, it would have ended them right there. Uh, but obviously there was Kismet involved and that record was supposed to get made. You know, my experience has been so many great records have been incredibly difficult. I don't think that's got to be in a part of the equation. It's just been an experience that I've had. I mean, granted, I've worked with artists that, as we said before, certain people would refer to as difficult. But uh, I don't know. There's there's just there's a, a fat there's an aspect of that that I've certainly seen quite often. I think that excuse me. 
that people are that people make records and can make records where you don't really run into those kinds of pitfalls at all. But uh, I I've experienced my fair share of difficulty in the process, and in hindsight, I can safely say that I I wouldn't, and for that matter, I couldn't do them any have done them any differently. Do you think some degree of that is necessary to come out with great art? You know, that there's got to be some kind of struggle in there, some kind of conflict. Um, absolutely not. I don't think that that's a requisite at all. Uh, I, I do think that that's something that comes up with artists, uh, especially the ones that are more sensitive to their own condition and the work that they do, uh, because they have to be introspective. They have to be minding what, how they feel from moment to moment because that informs the art that they ultimately create. So ultimately, as an artist, you're going to come face to face with that. And it's usually not very pleasant. You know, sometimes that can be very difficult. Uh, I was, I, I have a book um, which is an in, a series of interviews with a visual artist, Bob, and I cannot remember his last name because again, having a four-year-old has impaired my thinking, but uh, a guy who went from being, I think he started out as a, uh, I guess more of a realist painter and he gradually moved through abstraction to trying to disavow form altogether you know, and, and work with element, visual elements that had pertained in no way to known visual language. He was trying to invent his own visual language, basically. And his descriptions of how he get there, got there is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the name of the book is Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. I mean, what a remarkable concept that is, you know, but th this is, this is a, a bit of a digression, but why I'm saying this is because the interviewer asked him at one point, so you must have had a pretty rough childhood. And the guy's like, nope, it was great. It was idyllic. It was like the perfect childhood. I couldn't have asked for anything more. He's like, I had loving parents, everything I wanted, no angst at all. I mean, apparently he was really feisty when he became like an artist in his 20s and he would like actually physically fight people, you know? So, I mean, obviously there's something in there, but basically this guy was incredibly happy Judging by his the tone of, of his words in, the, in, in these interviews, he seems like kind of a carefree sort of guy, you know, who just had this leaning to be an artist. So I don't believe that that's a requisite or a prerequisite to being an artist. It's, you know, but it varies from person to person. And I think that that's the best answer. All this stuff is variable from person to person. Yeah, at the same time, I mean, so many of my favorites, when they were younger and tended to be a little more angry, um, I kind of found more passion in, in, in their music and in their process than when they kind of became a little more comfortable and a little more relaxed later on. It just seems like the intensity wasn't there anymore. So I think to some extent, it's a little bit of that um, that we're talking about here as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm definitely not going to argue the point. I mean, 
again, like, like I, like I, I've been saying before, almost all the records that we're talking about that I worked on, there was immense amounts of angst and, and struggle and, you know, just kind of like trying to butt your head through a brick wall and, you know, trying to also trying to aspire to things that were just above and beyond in some cases what artists thought they could do. And then they'd get there and just be like, holy mackerel, how did we do this? You know, so there's something about like the triumph of the will. I mean, I, I, I love the, the kind of heroic kind of romantic aspect of that. I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great theme. I've always appreciated that aspect of music production and creating art, you know, trying to aspire to something that's beyond what you believe your capabilities allow you to do and doing every, push, pushing every possible obstacle out of your way to get there. And I, I say that because I've seen it happen on so many occasions and it's actually quite beautiful to watch, you know, um, but, you know, it, but it varies from person to person. I mean, I, I, I read somewhere recently also where people were talking about something similar to what you just mentioned about how I think someone had, was commenting on something that, oh, who said this? It wasn't Paul McCartney. Um, you've got your, be, you know, you, you're, you, you've got like a three-year window, at, you know, when, you're, when you've become incredibly successful at doing your best work. And it usually happens around like your early 20, early mid 20s or something like that. After, after that, it's like, why even bother? And like, you know, I, I, unfortunately, history to a certain extent bears that out. <laughs> you know, I mean, with that said, I think the bands like the Rolling Stones, they definitely went with it for a, a little bit longer. I like them up to like some girls personally. Um, and they did, I feel like so many of their records before that are still phenomenal. You know, they had a really long run between their first record and Some Girl. You know, that's really good. Hmm. The Beatles managed it up till, you know, from like 63 till 1970. Um, so they had a decent run. I feel like Prince kept it going for quite a while. Prince did okay. Prince did okay. You know, um, I can't remember where he lost me after. Well, actually, I like Kiss very much, but like around the world in the day, I was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, and he'd been pretty solid before that. But, you know, some people buck that kind of that formula, but it just goes to show you, I think, that you can get a you can get kind of a beat on things, but there's still people who will do it slightly differently, you know, uh, and will, you know, maybe not be as good within that three-year range. Maybe just keep it going for a lot longer. You know, it just varies from artist to artist and person to person. And there's so many other circumstances outside of their control, you know, so. Yeah, like death. <laughs> that's one that's a circumstance yeah, that's yeah. way out of your control <laughs> you're not going to be making great records after that michael what would you say are the top two or three traits or characteristics that may make for a good producer well 
that's a very, very, very difficult question to answer. And the reason is, the reason I feel that way is that it's very difficult to actually define what a producer does. Uh, everyone seems to have their own definition of what a music producer is. I was in a swimming pool one time and a whole bunch of like very, very large gentlemen were kind of clustered nearby hangout hot tub. And I overheard them talking. I mean, these guys actually, as it turned out, they're all trainers for a local gym. But guess what? They're all record producers too. They're trainers and record producers. And they were talking about what they did. They, they made, you know, they, they made music at home on Ableton. They're record producers. Do, you know, could they have known from the kind of process that I, I would use to make a record? Hell no. But in their mind, they're record producers. And I'm sure that that is a really good line that they used to chat girls up, you know, at the club. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like the idea of what a record producer is varies so broadly from person to person. Uh, but I mean, someone in, in, a, in a studio environment with a band, you know. It's still very variable. You have record producers who are essentially cheerleaders who will go in and tell an artist everything they're doing is great and make virtually no comments on structural aspects of their music, you know, or even performance aspects. Like, how is that? Great. You know, let's record some more guitar. You know, to me, like if my personal criteria is, I, I can't, I don't know if I could like just, if I could bring it down to two, you know, I mean, for me, I think it's really important to have an opinion, to have a point of view, to have a feeling about something and an opinion that's based not on something, an idea, I suppose, that's, that that's, comes from a cerebral kind of uh, formulation, something that comes from a more sensory, a somatic kind of instinctual thing, like a trigger inside yourself that makes you react, where you're conscious of that trigger and you're conscious of that reaction. You understand why it's happening and you understand what you would do and what you would suggest to the artist regarding how to fix that or how to improve it. To be, and then there's the facet of being able to communicate ideas, most of which in a case like that would be abstract. How do you create an how do you communicate an abstract idea to someone in a way where it can become concrete in their mind and they're able to turn it into to take that idea and run with it? You know, so right there, opinion, communication, you know, then uh, technical ability, uh, as far as knowing music and stuff like that, you know, or, or knowing how to engineer and record things. I don't feel personally that those are requisites. Um, although those are things that, that I enjoy working with very much, you know, but I feel that the ability to be able to listen to a piece of music that you're going to work on and have compassion for the artist understand that you're there to help the artist, that you've got a responsibility to the, to the job at hand, and also being ready to make a personal investment in someone else's art. 
to be able to kind of get them bend themselves to be able to move to the next level not necessarily looking for something in it for yourself like obviously in my case i i, I obviously I, I i like the job of being a music producer i mean i'm not really producing records in studios anymore i do, i do my job much differently now but i i i like it i enjoy being compensated for it but a lot of what I do doesn't have to do, it doesn't start at the premise of you're going to pay me for this. It's from the premise of we're going to have an interaction, we're going to collaborate, and we're each going to be leaving the other with something. You're going to be leaving me with the experience of working with you, and that's going to inform my knowledge base. And I'm going to leave you with a completely different perspective on your own music and hopefully something that's going to be good, as good as, if not better than what you expected you were going to get when we, you know, when we started out, you know, sorry, that's going beyond two, but. Uh... No, <laughs> perfectly understandable. And uh, I really appreciate how you explained some of that. Thanks for sharing those concepts. Yeah, sure. Who, who's a producer, uh, one or two producers that you sort of really look up to and really, um, you know, I, I, for lack of a better term, idolize, but I don't really mean that. Well, you know, you can say it. Um, oh, gosh, there's so many. I mean, I off the top of my head right now, I'm going to have to say Connie Plunk, um, who, if you're not familiar with him, he was one of the great, if not the great producer of Krautrock Records in the 70s and through the 70s and the 80s he worked with a lot of german bands like Neu and kraftwerk and uh tangerine dream and he he i mean he was a tremendous influence to brian eno actually in in fact he produced two records that eno did with a german group called cluster uh and very much changed Dino's perspectives on uh, on music production. So, uh, and, and Connie's approach to recording was so unique. I mean, his records have a very unique sound to them. Um, they're very deep and punchy, uh, and but he's got this approach to creating space and width and, and depth like side to side, front to back, up and down, like just an entire axis where you sort of feel like you're, you've gone into a, a whole different world, you know, where you've got these big, dense, thick sounds that take up so much room, but at the same time, there's all this space and there's all this movement. And there's a lot, it's interesting, there's a lot of forward movement. It's very... Um, on, on the Neu records he did, I mean, I, that, that was part of their concept. They sort of pioneered a, a, their approach called Motorik, which was the idea, the, the visual of it was someone running towards a horizon that's constantly like, you know, it's just the constant state of someone running towards this horizon. That's what their records felt like. But on the Kraftwerk record that he did, it was kind of the same thing. Like it, there was kind of this great sense of forward motion happening. Uh, he produced Autobahn, 
um, which is obviously a big record for Kraftwerk. And um, he, th there's like a, a real sort of like spiritual sense. Like there's a, there's a real essence that I get from a lot, from listening to a lot of the records that he produced. Um, and he had this uncanny ability to kind of make electronic records that sounded organic and band records that sounded kind of electronic, you know, and he was able to imbue each with something that the other, with an element that the other hand, and I just loved the way he was able to kind of cross collateralize and draw from all these different re reference points. I mean, that's certainly what I was picking up and knowing that he'd worked in so many different, with so many different styles of music. Uh, it seemed pretty obvious that that was, that's what was going on. And yeah, he was highly influential um, to Eno and, and, and I mean, come on, the, the, a lot of those records that he, that he made, that he produced have, you know, lasting effects. I mean, obviously, the whole kraut rock movement was incredibly influential uh, toward the uh, British punk rock movement, you know. So that's that's important right there. Uh, yeah, he's great. I mean, obviously George Martin. It's like, what you know? How can you not? <laughs> how how can you, you not include him in the conversation? But then there's like Tom Dowd, Chris Thomas, and Mutt Lang, and um, you know the the list goes on and on and on. Glenn Johns. Um, yeah, on and on and on. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, because like all the music that I wound up loving is music that I hated when I was growing up. <laughs> I couldn't stand Led Zeppelin when I was a teenager. <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of rock music that I detested when I was younger. Like a lot of that stuff was like, just didn't want to know. Uh, well, you weren't, I mean, even a lot of the rock critics back then bashed things that now are, you know, held in such high regard. Oh, they like, did a, like they a, did Led a pretty Zeppelin, good job. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the critics hated Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I think that really stuck in their craw too, actually. Like they, I think Jimmy Page was, it just, I think it embittered him immensely, you know, it, I, I think that he wanted to, he wanted some critical appreciation from them, but, ah, you know, everyone catches up sooner or later, you know, I mean, it's a funny thing about that because uh, I remember when we were working with Eno and we came in one day to the studio and he was sitting there all depressed because he'd done this record with David Byrne called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and it came out and it had gotten two and a half star ratings all the way across the board in all the British music papers and that day he was like I give up like he just decided he didn't want to make rock music anymore or pop music he just wanted to make ambient records so he fired uh Fred the drummer and Bob Quine who was the guitarist and we just started making an ambient record um obviously things changed in the rest of history but what's interesting about this is that uh in I think it was 2005 or whenever it was, they did a 25th anniversary re-release. I think it was 25th re-release of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And every music paper across the board who'd panned this record or given it tepid reviews and made fun of him and it 
five stars all the way across the board, acknowledging how important it was culturally, how to change the world and all this kind of stuff. You know, and I thought to myself, you know, where were you jagoffs when like this record was out and you could have actually made a difference? Like, it's interesting because what critics had to say about that record actually pushed a guy like Eno away from making rock music for a very long time. You know, imagine what would have happened and how different music would be in general if the, if the music press had actually listened to that record, seen what was there, or at least commented on it constructively instead of using it as an, as an, an excuse for them to kind of aggrandize themselves and, you know, find new ways to, to mock people as people did in the British music press back then and actually still do, I think. Um, you know, how different that would have been if he'd stayed on that road. If, for, I mean, if that had happened, we would have had our rock band and we, and we would have toured the world and stuff. It would have been a whole different thing. But it's interesting to think about, about it in those terms, like the effect that critic, the critics have and had at that point. And, you know, there was a time when people who are music critics were, they recognized that they were part of the ecosystem. They didn't see themselves as outside of it. People who could just take like meaningless shots at like at musicians. Like there was a guy named Ralph Gleason who was an excellent music critic. And I think that he saw himself and was treated by members of the music community as being part of it. Because I don't think that he really tried to piss on anyone that way, you know? And I think there's something very honorable about that. I mean, it, there's one, it's one thing to say that something's bad when you think it's bad, you know, but to go out of your way and to also to, to not see what's there and not consider the effect that something like that could have on an artist. Funnily enough, when Super Unknown came out, right before it came out, Rolling Stone put a review in and the review for the record was like probably on the second to last page of the album reviews and they gave it two and a half stars. <laughs> now, the best part of that story is that you can look and look and look and you will never find that review anywhere online or anywhere else. That's because they, they did their sort of revisionist editing after the fact and they had someone rewrite a review in 1997 about it and give it four stars. <laughs> that's, no, that's funny, but it's also is interesting to think about, you know, how something like that uh, has and could change the course of creative endeavors, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy stuff. Michael, um, what inspired you to uh, put out the book I mentioned at the outset? And um, you mentioned other books as well. Um, and what else do you have going on right now? Well, um, first off, I wrote that book because remember I was talking about that artist, the happy one, <laughs> Bob, whatever his name is. Uh, he, his book was essentially like a credo. A lot of it was basic, was almost him step-by-step -step describing his creative process. Like the way you could basically, he was giving you entree into the way his mind worked. It was incredible actually. And um, 
so many of the books that I like by artists are essentially a manifesto, you know, a way of thinking their way, like presentation of their way of thinking about art creation. And no one has done this with music production. I mean, people write interesting books about their experiences uh, or, you know, cute stuff about how to do this in the studio, how to do that in the studio, but no one really kind of like gets into like the methodology, the nuts and bolts of like how I do this, how I did this, why, et cetera, et cetera. And I just felt that if you're going to do this kind of work, or I should say, if I'm going to do this kind of work, I would like to present a, I would like to present my, a methodology of sorts. Not that people should follow it or anything like that, but that they could look at it and recognize that they could have their own, that they could create something that's theirs. And also to find, to, to draw some inspiration from it. You know, um, as far as other books, I'm actually working on a series of books regarding a bunch of records that I've produced. Right now, it looks like I've got about seven or eight, seven done. Uh, and as I mentioned, I'm working on, I've, I've finished one on rocket, uh, and working in material. I've, I'm, I'm doing two on working with the chili peppers on those records, Soundgarden, Manson, Hole. Uh, and, uh, I decided that instead of making superficial descriptions of what the technical processes were and things like that, and I, I find that books that people write about the music, about the music production process, they're so superficial and they don't really touch on the relationships and what was going on at kind of like a boots on the ground type level. And I, I was like, I realized that people don't want to piss anyone that they work with off, you know, and get anyone mad. But I'm like, you know what, life's too short for this. It's like, these are, they're very interesting stories. And they also paint a very vivid picture of what a recording process can actually be like, and that it's not all fun and games. People seem to have a very idea of how glamorous the process of working with like, you know, famous artists and things like that can be. And it's like, no, this is very hard work. And I also felt that it would be another way to present some of the thought processes that I use to make some of these records. And I felt it would be really interesting backstory for people so they could really feel what the whole experience was like. Uh, so I'm gonna do like about three of those or two, two or three of those at a time over the course of the next couple of years. And uh, I think they'll be very interesting for people who want to get more insight into the whole, into the process of music production from, from my perspective about how long is each of those books do you think um they're running right now about 130 to 200 pages per book you know so not a not a back-breaking read but uh you expect to have three out uh before the end of the year is that um three of them are being edited right now so i think that they'll be ready within the next, um, I'm going to say two months. And I'm going to, they're going to be available only through my website. I'm doing them digitally. 
And what is your website? Tell people. It's michaelbeinhorn.com. And that's B-E-I-N. That's right. M-I-C-H-A-E-L-B-E-I-N-H-O-R-N. My interest at this point is mainly working directly with artists. I'm not really, I don't, I, I don't work in recording studios anymore. It's just not something that I, that I feel acclimated to doing. Uh, so my process is really trying to help artists more kind of find their way and also work with them from a structural level, like helping them with the, develop their songs. I mean, it, it all falls under the category, I think, of what record companies used to call artist development, uh, which is something that's sadly lacking in uh, everywhere. I, rec, people in record companies have a very sort of skewed impression of what music, of what artist development really is now. And uh, I feel that, uh, I, I feel that having someone who has the kind of experience that I have, being able to help artists with their music and just kind of help navigate them is a really, really important resource. And again, one that's just not, not readily available out there. Uh, so that's, that's the direction that I'm approaching things from now. That's fantastic. You can help mentor, you know, some of these young, uh, raw talents and set them on the right path and not let them get taken advantage of hopefully too. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, that's kind of, that feels like my calling at this point. I don't, I, I feel like I've made my statement as far as actually going into recording studios and making uh, sonic documents and, you know, recordings and things like that. It's, you know, time to kind of shift to something else. Michael, yeah, thank you so much. Thing. Great talking to you. You too, Michael. Take care. All right, sir. See ya. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.